Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thank you so much for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monta Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. I'd like to begin our program today by asking you a very simple, very basic question about your faith. What motivates you? What motivates you to have faith at all? What motivates you to express that faith in some way, to share that faith, to live that faith? What motivates you to worship? What motivates you to do good works, to show your religion, to show your faith and how you treat other people and express your love? What motivates you? So today's program is going to be all about motivation. And what I would like to do is examine five motivations, beginning with what I believe is the lowest form of motivation, although it is a legitimate form, it is the lowest form of motivation, and working our way up to the highest form of motivation. So let's start with this idea, being motivated by the expectation of divine judgment. Now, a moment ago I said this is the lowest form of motivation. I do believe that's true, but it's still a legitimate form of motivation. As Christians mature in their faith and they learn more and their relationship with God grows, I think they're less and less motivated by his judgment. I I think that just factors much less into the activities and the attitudes and expressions of a Christian's faith as that Christian grows and matures. But at the beginning, perhaps the reason why you became a Christian, perhaps in your spiritual infancy and immaturity, your primary motivation for becoming a Christian was knowing that God was going to judge you and you didn't want to be judged. You didn't want to be condemned. You didn't want to go to hell. That was your initial motivation. Now, this is a realization that everybody has to reach at some point, that God will judge this world. Indeed, God, as he has revealed it in the New Testament, would have every Christian soberly realize the reality of death, the inevitability of the coming of Christ, and the certainty of a last judgment, where each of us is going to have to give an account of his life to God. Take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the New Testament. If you've got a Bible handy, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and notice here verses 9 and 10. Therefore also we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Maybe it'll help us understand this motivation better if we kind of put it in practical terms. Let's say you have a work computer or maybe a smartphone that's been issued to you by your job. What prevents you from looking at pornography? on either of those devices. Now, I know, 
Everybody says, ideally, we just wouldn't do that because it's wrong. It's the right thing to do to deny that and to to be seemly in everything that we do. But maybe you're not at that point spiritually. And maybe the initial motivation, the the first thing that comes to your mind is, well, I'm not going to look at illicit material on my work computer or my work cell phone because I know that my boss is going to check it every month, that there is going to be a record of what I look at and that I'm going to have to give an account of how I've used that device. The boss is keeping track. The IT guy is keeping track. And all of that will become public information. Now, again, maybe that's not the highest form of motivation, but it can be pretty effective. Knowing that your deeds are going to be exposed can be very motivating in choosing to do the right thing. And for all the emphasis that the Bible places on loftier forms of motivation, the Bible writers weren't afraid of pointing this out as being a legitimate form of motivation. Read any of these passages seriously and reverently, and you will be motivated to follow Christ. Romans 14 verse 12 says, So then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Hebrews 9, verse 27, And inasmuch as it is appointed unto men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Or in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 and 11, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will be dissolved with fervent heat, and the earth and its works will be given up and burned. Now, seeing that these things are to be destroyed in this manner, what manner of people ought you to be in holy living and godliness? Or the judgment scene in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books according to their works. Now, if your boss at work knows what you're doing, with your work computer or your work tablet or your work smartphone, how much more does God know what you're doing with the life and the body and the mind and the time that's been given to you by him? A great quote here from an early church writer named Augustine. He wrote, Nothing has contributed more powerfully to wean me from all that held me down to earth than the thought constantly dwelt on of death and of the last account. At its core, this form of motivation is really all about just being honest with ourselves, about honestly assessing who we are and what our lives are made up of. If God is going to look at the content of our lives, which he will, and if God is going to use what we've done with our lives as a basis for judgment, which he will, then it really puts the emphasis, the onus on us to make sure that we're living the way that we should. How, how did you treat that person today, that, that person that needed help and asked you for it? How did you treat that person when they cut you off on the freeway? What was your response when somebody didn't treat you very respectfully? What was your response when somebody did treat you very respectfully? Were you kind in return? Did you show equal love and respect to that person? And even beyond that, did you love your enemies? Did you pray for your enemies? Did you consider other people as more important than yourself? And did you treat them that way? 
How have you used your life? Because your life will either be used against you or will be used as evidence of who you really are at your core. So moving on, there's a second motivation that I want to look at here that's related to the first, but it is distinctive. And that is the desire to escape eternal condemnation. If we're motivated by the fact that we're going to be judged one day and that we're going to have to give an account of our life, then we should also be motivated by the consequence of that judgment. And the consequence being condemnation for those who have not lived according to God's will. The certainty of hell is the eternal abiding place of those who have not lived by God's will is so plainly revealed in the scriptures that it can't be anything but certain. Matthew chapter 25, for example, Depart from me, you accursed, into the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. And at the end of that chapter, these shall go away into eternal punishment. You could also look at Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, Revelation 20, verse 10, or John chapter 5, verses 28 and 29, which records Jesus saying, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those that have done good unto a resurrection of life, and those that have done evil unto a resurrection of judgment. And of course, the word judgment here is synonymous with condemnation. Another passage would be Acts chapter 24 and verse 15 that you could study on your own. Now, it's obvious that if the desire to avoid hell has no place at all in motivating the Christian to good works, then such warnings as all of those in those foregoing passages are meaningless. We ought to at least in some small way be motivated by the prospect of hell. We shouldn't want to go there, is what I'm saying. We shouldn't want to go to hell. Now, like I said of the first motivation, ideally, or as you grow and mature as a Christian, that motivation becomes less and less a part of why you do what you do and why you believe what you believe. But I can certainly speak from my own experience that when I was younger and I first studied about the faith and I first became a Christian, that for me at least, not going to hell was a pretty big deal. I didn't want to be condemned to eternal hell. It certainly sounded scary to me. Of course, 20 years and a lot of praying and a lot of studying and a lot of worshiping later, that is not quite the motivation that it used to be. But I don't think that I was wrong when I was a young man and I felt scared of hell. Before we move on, I want to emphasize just one more time. I I want to insist one more time that although the desire to avoid hell has its place in motivating maybe a young Christian or somebody new to the faith, it can only be elemental. If it's the only motive that you ever feel for your entire life, and even as you grow and study and learn more, If just not going to hell is the only motivation that you have, then it can never really incite the Christian to any more than just a cursory attention to goodness, to godliness, to righteousness. One so motivated is, in reality, using his works as a means of appeasing divine wrath. It's as if he was saying to God, Oh, when you look at all the good that I've done, uh, look at all the people that I've helped, look at all the, the times that I've worshipped, all the sacrifices that i made. When you look at how good I've been, maybe, just maybe, you'll overlook my sins and not send me straight to hell when I die. 
But you know, God's not going to be bribed. He can't be bribed by ritual to overlook one's failure to walk in good or to walk in truth, to walk in light. He's not going to be bribed by good works to overlook one's failure to be genuinely and lovingly committed to Christ and his cause. Just think of it this way. Is fear really what God is looking for? Is a life totally motivated by fear the goal of God's work that he has done in this world? Remember what it says in 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Uh, Look at that, confidence in the day of judgment. Not fear in the day of judgment, but confidence. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. And if you're spending your entire life just being afraid of hell, then you really haven't been perfected in love. You really haven't come to understand in a deeper, richer way the power of God and the love of God and the mercy of God and the father-child relationship that he wishes to have with you. Now, perhaps a father can get obedience from his child by instilling fear in him, but we hope, and I can speak from personal experience, that we hope as fathers, eventually our children grow and mature to the point that they realize we disciplined them for love, and we don't want to discipline them forever. I would love to get to a point in my child's lives and in my relationship with them that they're not motivated by fear of discipline. I would love to get to a point where they have grown to the point where discipline, punishment, is no longer the most powerful motivating factor, but that we are drawn to each other because of love. Which leads to our next motivator, the desire to go to heaven. This can be an incredibly dynamic force in motivating the Christian to live God's way. This motive isn't selfishness, by the way, but self-interest based upon the realization that one cannot receive the end of faith and the eternal salvation of his soul unless his faith issues in the service of other people. But certain cynics might accuse the Christian of doing good only because he wants to get paid off by God with the bliss of heaven, with the hope of eating pie in the sky by and by. Admittedly, if the Christian's only motive for doing good is the desire to go to heaven— then it is without God's approval. If you think that heaven is nothing but things for you, if you see heaven as just an eternal country club, uh, heaven is a place where you get to go fishing every single day. Heaven is a place where you get to do all of the things that you didn't have time to do in this life, and you just get to do it for eternity. Heaven is a place with perfectly manicured lawns where you get to play bocce ball all the time. Or drink and party and eat whatever you want with no physical consequences anymore. And if you're just motivated by that, that very false perception of heaven, then that's certainly not a motivation that God approves of. But let's be careful not to throw out the baby with the bathwater. If there are false perceptions of heaven, if there are ideas about heaven that are wrong, that are poorly motivating people, Well, then that is one thing. But to be motivated by the Bible's description of heaven 
and to be honestly, truly, zealously excited about going to heaven? Well, there's nothing wrong with that at all. That that is a justifiable motivation. Any Christian who loses sight of heaven, who has little or no desire to inherit the perfect bliss of that place, can't possibly enjoy to the fullest the happiness in this present life that's inherent in living the Christian life. Furthermore, while there's no desire to go to heaven, one will have little or no motivation to be patient in doing good when the going gets rough and that person is beset by the temptations that come with this life. Nobody would obey the following injunctions not seriously intent on going to heaven. In Galatians 6 verse 9, Let us not be weary in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not grow weary. If any Christian holds fast to his resolve to continue steadfastly in good works, he'll continually keep in mind all of the things above. Like it says in Colossians chapter 3, Keep your mind set on the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Think about heaven. Dwell on heaven. Imagine, if we're even capable of imagining its grand nature, imagine your existence in heaven, in the very presence of God, with all the tears and all the sadness, all the pain, and all of the suffering of this life gone. When the first Jerusalem and the first world and the first life and the first earth have all passed away and they've been replaced by the heavenly life, that, that is a life that should draw all of us toward it. We should want to go to heaven, and that should be a really big part of being a Christian. As one writer really put it, C.M. Mary A Christian will not be weary of service that hath the crown in his eye. Somebody else once said, Our heavenly harvest lies in every earnest and faithful deed as the oak with centuries of growth in all its summer glory sleeps in the acorn cup as the golden harvest slumbers and the seeds under their covering of wintry snow. Yes, my friends, the road to heaven, which is the way of dependence on Christ, is paved with the works, the attitudes, and the thoughts, and the faith of this present Christian life. But there's a fourth motivator for living that Christian life, and it's gratitude. Psalm 116 verse 12 says, What shall I render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? What a great question. What shall I render to him for everything that he's done for me? What can I possibly give back to God? Now, let's be clear. There there is nothing that I can give back to God that is equal to what he has done for me. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that through my belief I might have salvation. I, I can't do anything to repay that. I can't do anything that equals that. God loved me. God loves you and all people so very much that the collective gratitude of mankind could still not equal the immeasurable and immense love of our Creator, our God, our Father in heaven. But with all that being said, my gratitude should motivate me to live a certain way, to express my faith and my gratitude to God. 
In looking at the matter from maybe a negative perspective, we can even better understand the power of gratitude in motivating the Christian. Go to first, uh, excuse me, Second Peter chapter one, and notice here. After the apostle Peter had exhorted his brethren to supply in their faith all of these Christian attitudes and Christian graces, which can't be separated from a life of good works, by the way, he had this to say in verse 9, 2 Peter 1, verse 9, For he that lacks these things is blind, seeing only what is near, having forgotten the cleansing from his old sins. It's evident that one who does not walk in good works has forgotten the cleansing from his sins. He's forgotten about receiving the great and free gift of God. He has forgotten that he is supposed to be God's workmanship, Ephesians 2 verse 10, created in Christ Jesus for good works. You owe it to God. Now, again, you can't ever pay back. You can't ever pay back. In full, what God has done for you. But let's keep in mind that when we owe such a debt, when we, when we owe God so much, we owe it to him to give our very best, to be motivated in all of our works to serve him and, and to love him. Which brings us to our final motivation. The highest of all motives, higher than the fear of condemnation, the fear of hell, higher even than the desire for the gift of heaven, and higher even than simply being thankful to God for what he has done. At the highest level of our motivation, the thing that pushes us and drives us and motivates us should be our incredible love for God. 1 John 4 verse 19 says, We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. And it is in love that we find the highest motivation, the lack of which no work can rightly be called a good work. Someone once said, the strongest of all motives that can change a man's life, both within and without, for his lasting good is the love of God. The Apostle Paul declared in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 14 that the love of Christ compels us. That's just another word for motivates us. The love of Christ drives us. The basic idea here may be Christ's love for us, but but his love for us must find a response in our love for him. It incites us to good works. He loved us so much that he died for us, and we, in response to his love, must love him so much that we will willingly present our bodies, our time, our money, all of our sacrifices on the altar of Christian service. In love, he gave his life for us. And in love, we must give our lives to him. So I'll ask you one more time. What motivates you? Maybe you're just on that first step. You're you're just now learning about Christianity. You're very new to the faith. Maybe you've just cracked the Bible open for the very first time in a long time. And you're exploring its pages, trying to figure out what it is that you believe. Well, even if you're at that first bit of motivation, then, then please be motivated by the fear of condemnation and judgment. You will be judged. God is watching everything that you do. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a long time and you've moved past the idea of condemnation and, and you're, not, you're not worried about that. You, you have full confidence in God's mercy and you have full confidence in God's grace. 
And that hell is not the thing that's always in the back of your mind motivating every little thing that you do as a Christian. Well, well, can you take it a step further then? Even if you are mature and you've grown a lot in your faith, can you take it a step further? Can you be more loving, more loving to God's people, more loving to your enemies, more loving to God himself as it motivates you to serve him and as it motivates you to worship him, to study and to pray and to practice various spiritual disciplines. Whatever stage of your spiritual development you're in, we'd love to study with you at Monte Vista and help you along. If you've got questions about faith or if you've got questions about the Bible or God, then let us know. And let's sit down and have that Bible study as soon as possible. And as always, my friends, have a lovely, blessed day. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monte Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monte Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Hallelujah.